So how does a person or a group or a church measure success? Many in our day and age would say size or growth or wealth or mass popular appeal. Many say that bigger is better and a sign of divine favor. And in some cases it is, but not always. I was reading uh, something from Eugene Peterson the other day in his... <laughs> I was reading something from Eugene Peterson the other day in his book called The Run with the Horses, and he said this. <laughs> he wrote, Crowds lie. The more people, the less truth. Integrity is not strengthened by multiplication. We can test this observation easily. Which promise is most likely to be kept? The promise spoken by a politician to a crowd of 10,000 or the promise exchanged between two friends? He goes on. Since we, have all, we all have everyday experience of the unreliability of crowds to discern and reflect the truth, it is puzzling that the appeal to numbers continues to carry so much weight with us. The selling of a million copies of a book is accepted as evidence that the book is excellent and important. The engagement of a majority of people in a certain moral behavior is set forth as evidence of its legitimacy. Approval by the masses is accreditation. But a rudimentary knowledge of history, corroborated by a few moments of personal reflection, will convince us that truth is not statistical and that crowds are often more foolish than wise. In crowds, the truth is flattened to a slogan. Not only the truth that is spoken, but the truth that is lived is reduced and distorted by the crowd. Now again, that's not to say that every crowd lies or that bigger is bad necessarily, but I think what he's trying to do is expose our bias toward size and growth and popular appeal. But just a reminder to us that by those metrics, Jesus would be deemed a failure. Because Jesus, at the end of his ministry, after investing three years and drawing the crowds, the crowds eventually left him. His disciples betrayed him. And save for a few women and a disciple at the cross, he died alone. Have you ever listened to the parables of Jesus? Now, there are parables all over the place throughout the Gospels, these simple stories of divine truth. But there's this one grouping of parables in Matthew 13. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn open to Matthew 13 or on your phone, Bible app, Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, Jesus keeps repeating this phrase over and over again where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And he, and he uses these analogies, these metaphors, these stories to try and communicate what the, kingdom is heaven, what the kingdom of heaven is like and how it's experienced. So I just want to maybe capture a little bit on the whiteboard here a list 
uh, and this is, I need your participation in this. Just scan through Matthew 13 and either where it says explicitly the kingdom of heaven is like, or if you see a parable that describes what the kingdom of heaven is like, what does he use to describe the kingdom of heaven? What do you see? Yeah, so he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. He actually says it's like buried treasure, right? What else? What are some of the metaphors he uses? He tells the parables in Matthew 13. Okay, so he says it's like, it's like a sower with seed. Yeah, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Anyone ever held a mustard seed before? How big is it? It's the size of a mustard seed. It's tiny, small. I, I keep a jar of mustard seeds in my drawer, and sometimes I just pull them out and rub a seed in my finger. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. What else in Matthew 13? Yeah, so she, uh, he says that it's like leaven in a lump, right? Leaven in bread. What else? Yeah, like a, like a net. Right, that catches fish and all sorts of stuff. Like a merchant. Any other ones you find there in Matthew 13? Okay, treasure. I got that one. Treasure buried. What? Okay, master in a house. How about the very first one in the in the chapter? It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like, but he tells the first parable. Well, actually, we already said it here. This is a sower sowing seed. Just curious, how much of the seed? Um, well, describe the seeds and the conditions of the seed. Some seed falls where? What's that? The path. What happens to that seed? Birds come. What's the next condition? Rocky, rocky soil. What's the next one? Thorns. And then there's the good soil. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, and there's seed that's being spread, and... Three-fourths of it gets bird-taken, rocky ground, thorn-choked. Other parables that Jesus tells, other places in the Gospels, he says that the kingdom is like a, a child. You have to be like a child to receive it. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast that people don't want to go to because they find other things to busy themselves with. It says the kingdom is like virgins and how they conserve their oil. Any just initial thoughts about the kingdom based on what Jesus describes here? Okay, it's not just one thing. All right, it takes a lot of different things to try and describe it. So maybe it's yeah, 
more than we would imagine it to be? Inconspicuous. For those that don't know what that means, what does that mean? You might miss it. Yeah, that's great. What else about the kingdom? Okay, there's a response to it. Some of this here. Treasure buried, the uh, pearl. We got that down here. What else? Yeah, it has a big impact, but you may not always see it. It may start really small. It may be mustard seed, but then it grows and develops, and the birds of the field, you know, the, the air come and find nests, or like a, a leaven in bread. Yeah. You really grasped, understood what the kingdom was. We would sell everything. We would give up everything. We would surrender everything. We would let go, get out of our own understanding. Yeah. So it's valuable. If, if, we could, if we fully got what the offer of this is, it'd be worth, where'd it go? It'd be worth selling everything to buy it. It would be yeah, the pearl story like that too. Seeking, searching, giving, giving it all to find it. I just want to remind us that success may look a little different and it may take time and it may not always be caught right away. And that in some ways, success is staying true to what God says and who he calls you to be. So this week in our Selah series, as we take a purposeful pause, just so you know, unless you like to know where we're going with this, we are going to start a new series the first week of March as, as Lent begins, and we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross leading up to Easter. But as we do Selah and a purposeful pause this week, tonight I want to talk through the values of our church. And to those that have been asking, like, what is, what is Reality Church about? What are we like? What do we value? Where are we going? I hope that maybe talking about some of the things that we value as a church may be helpful to paint the picture for us tonight. I think that talking about our values doesn't solve everything, but I think it helps color in the lines. If you've been around our church recently, the last, I don't know, few months to a year, if we can put this up, you've maybe heard us use this phrase, or maybe you've seen this it's kind of faded here, a picture. We've talked about the idea that we really desire to cultivate intimacy with God. Right? That you're made for intimacy with God and you get to participate in that. And as we're made for intimacy with God and we can cultivate intimacy with God, it's not just alone, it's with others. And as God does that work in us with others, it's also for others. So we've talked about this idea before. We also have things that we believe. We have, you know, we have a statement of faith on our website. So tonight in talking about our values, we're not going to capture everything, but I'm, I'm hoping maybe it helps us to get a sense as we continue to move forward together. Uh, there's a great theologian named Elvis Presley who once said that values are like fingerprints. Nobody's are the same, 
but you leave them over everything that you do. So like, what are the fingerprints that we do leave, and maybe in some ways these are aspirational as well, that we want to leave over the things that we do? Before I talk about our own values, I want to see, again, we live in, in the U.S., we have lots of companies around us that talk about their values. Let me see if you can guess these companies based upon their values. So if I'm going to put this up on the screen. Go ahead and put the next slide up on the TV. So this is, uh, this is from one particular company's website. They say they want to be the leading global producer, provider of entertainment and information guided by optimism, innovation, decency, quality, community, and storytelling. It's Disney. So I'm curious, what gave it away? Unless you have Disney's values memorized. Okay, so there's something. And the optimism? Decency. And when Walt Disney was around. Okay, fair enough. Next one. Can you guess this company? They got a little bit longer list. Focus on the user and all else will follow. It's, the be it's best to do one thing really, really well. Fast is better than slow. Democracy on the web works. You don't need to be at your desk to need an answer. You can make money without doing evil. There's always more information out there. The need for information crosses all borders. You can be serious without a suit and great just isn't good enough. Google. What gave that away? Democracy on the web. That was the without doing evil part. Have they given up on that part of the value? I don't know. Okay, one, one other one. With our partners, our coffee, and our customers at our core, we will live these values. Creating a culture of warmth and belonging where everyone is welcome, acting with courage, challenging the status quo, and finding new ways to grow our company and each other, being present, connecting with transparency, dignity, and respect, delivering our very best in all we do, holding ourselves accountable for results. Who is <laughs> Alex, I'll take... Yeah, what, what gave that away? Other than the coffee, maybe, at the beginning of it. Okay. The warmth. Is that true for most people? Yeah. No? Challenging the status quo. Challenging the status quo? You think the Starbucks embodies that? Okay. Yeah. So, so, so again, different people express their values in different ways, and sometimes it's not always one-to-one, -one, and there's different ways of going about it, but it begins to kind of give you a sense for what they're hoping for. So can we put the circles back up here? And I'm going to butcher the circles here, right? We're talking about cultivating intimacy with God, with others, for others. So I'm just going to talk through five of the values that we're hoping continues to shape who we are as a church. Our values help us measure success. And I think they help us know what to fight for and how to align ourselves in particular ways. So with cultivation of intimacy with God, with others, for others, the first one that I want to highlight is the value of health, 
and flourishing. I know my handwriting is not the best, but hopefully you can see that. Or maybe you'd say freedom and flourishing, but as we're talking about, right, with God and for others, we even... uh, a couple weeks ago, we, had, we talked about Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1 and this picture of a tree. Remember that? The, the Psalm 1 tree deeply planted by rivers of water that bears fruit in its season. The leaves shall not wither and whatever it does, it prospers. There's that picture of flourishing because your life is rooted and grounded in the source of life and the source of life being God himself. He is life. He is the, the stream of living water and our lives are planted. Our with God life is rooted and grounded in a source that can act actually provide sustenance for our souls, not that we would be the arid wasteland of Jeremiah 17, but that we are trusting in him and building our lives in him. Uh, there's a picture that we want for that. And, and the way of following Jesus impacts our whole lives. We want to be people for ourselves and for others that flourish Following Jesus means flourishing, but it also means doing it for a lifetime because following Jesus isn't a sprint. We've got some older saints in the house. Amen. Amen. Following Jesus isn't a sprint. And so we want to be a church community that cultivates flourishing, but not just in the short term, that for the long run, Right, in the relay of faith that's passed to the next generation to the next, that we can live in a way that we're going to follow Jesus for decades. We mentioned this phrase to some of our leaders yesterday, that we care about your role, but we also care about your soul. So as someone who gets involved in doing things for others, whether that's within our church community or within our city or within our world, we don't want just people being cogs in a spiritual machine, burned out, used up, but that we care about your soul, not just what you do. Burnout isn't inevitable. There's a way to follow Jesus and not be crispy when you're in your 70s, 80s. We're human beings who are divine image bearers, and this idea of flourishing impacts our emotions, it impacts our thinking, it impacts our work, it impacts our play, it impacts our citizenship, it impacts our parenting, our singleness, our neighboring, and our bodies. When Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly, I believe he meant that. That his offer was life to the full. And I also think there's a reason why Jesus used so many kingdom metaphors of gardening, plants, trees, seeds, weeds, and gardens. Because there's a lot to be learned from that in flourishing.
So there's implications. Like if we're going to be a church that says we value that, that intimacy with God for others means that we're going to flourish, that those in leadership flourish, that those in the body flourish for the long term. It impacts our schedules. It impacts rest. It impacts boundaries, commitments of what we say yes to and what we say no to. Here's another one. Biblical justice. Especially as it pertains to our intimacy with God in a direction that's for others. Over the past two years, the justice conversation has become a massive hot button in the American church. Have you noticed? And it has caused a lot of pain and fracturing within churches and relationships. It's led to name-calling, labeling. And so I invite us as a church to read our Bibles about what it means to pursue justice. If we can go to the next slide. Biblical justice... It does include the idea of punishing those who do wrong. There's a sense of justice in the Bible that those that do wrong experience the consequences for that. But the Bible does also talk about justice in terms on a positive side of giving people what is their due. There's a scholar, Pastor Herman Bavink. Says in the Bible, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. It not only punishes evil doing, but it restores those who are victims of injustice. When we talk about justice in the Bible, there's this word justice. Go to the next slide. It's often married to the term righteousness. Mishpat and tzedakah. Justice and righteousness show up together to do justice. Righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Often in the scriptures, there's one scholar, Nicholas Wolfersdorf, he created this category, calls it the, the quartet of the vulnerable. We just read it in that prior verse. That when you begin to read when God talks about justice throughout the scriptures, he talks about the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. And that God aligns himself with and cares for justice being done to this group of people because so often it is not being done. And so as we as a church have an eye on our role to play in the world, in the kingdom, in our city, in our county, we want to have our hearts open to the quartet of the vulnerable and say, who is the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the poor? And how has God called us to bless and serve them? Doing justice is rooted in God's character. 
And what's odd to me is that that has become labeled what progressives do and conservatives don't in the last two years. And that one side only cares for law and order and wrongs being called out, and another party cares for those who are vulnerable. I read the Bible who talks about justice and righteousness and the marriage of this. An invitation to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Justice wasn't an Old Testament calling. Justice is a calling for the people of God that aligns with his heart. So it's interesting, the church now, Reality Church is now close to 15 years old, and when Reality Church was planted, it was told me, because I wasn't here when it was started, but it was told to me that Reality was planted as a downtown church. I'm just curious, would you stand up if you lived downtown? Would you... Would you stand up if you work downtown? Okay, depending on where you are in your day. Two, maybe three. Great, thanks. I think a question is, is what does it mean to be a downtown church if none of us live down here and two or three of us work down here? And I think, to me, a better question than are we a downtown church is are we a church that has a heart for justice? That has an eye out for the quartet of the vulnerable? No matter where you live, no matter where you work, I think that the pursuit of justice and these things will lead us places like downtown and to love people in his name. So rather than like, are we a downtown church? I'd rather say we want to be a church that this justice. And then in that vein, another value. Lavish hospitality. When, when people talk about hospitality, I don't know, and maybe it's just my upbringing, when someone talks about hospitality, I tend to get bored. It feels like, and there's one author, he says, the hospitality conjures up images of tea parties, bland conversation, and a general atmosphere of coziness. Rosaria Butterfield, she says that modern hospitality has been connected to Victoria tea, crocheted doilies, and China-inspired blue and white paisley patterned teacups. When I talk about hospitality, I'm not talking about doilies and Victorian-era teacups. When you hang out with your friends for free, that's not hospitality. That's called leisure. When you hang out with other people, you want to be your friends, and it costs something. That's social networking. When you engage strangers at a cost, that's entertainment. Like the hospitality industry, restaurants, coffee shops, hotels. That's not hospitality. Next slide. Hospitality is the Greek word philoxenia. 
Hebrews 13, we're commanded not to neglect to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, we're commanded to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, we're called to seek to show hospitality. The word philoxenia literally means the love of the stranger. To offer the warm welcome of the Father to those who are strangers. Again, Rosaria Butterfield has a great book says the gospel comes with a house key. She defines this as radically ordinary hospitality as this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. So it's a, it's a privilege to offer the warm welcome of the Father to other people and not just use insider-outsider language to provide for people's needs. Lavish hospitality is for others, like our, our with other life, but it's also for others. What I love about the idea of lavish hospitality is sometimes when we talk about mission, people become projects. There's no room for project when we're offering hospitality. As we've been offered the warm welcome of the Father, as we've been welcomed in Christ, so welcome others. Love the stranger. And hopefully those that come and experience our Sundays would experience lavish hospitality, even around a meal tonight. And those who are far off would experience hospitality as well. How do you spell committed? Two T's? Another value is committed community. And this one's probably one that you've picked up a lot from being around reality is that we invite people to be in committed community. As the people of God, you read the Bible, it's kind of committed community is all throughout the scriptures, even the metaphors that are used were described as the bride of Jesus, the body of Christ. We are excited that the with God life is meant to be done in the company of other people. It's a journey of faith that's not meant to be done alone. And here's the asterisk, this is not just for extroverts. And no one is trying to make introverts into extroverts. I'm an introvert. But extroverts and introverts are called the committed community. God in his very essence is community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship the three in one. At the center of the universe is a community of eternal love. And that has implications that God is in community within himself. And then you look at the life of Jesus, the perfect human, the sinless one. How did Jesus do life? In committed community. He didn't do it alone. He was in constant community with the Spirit and the Father. And then with other people, Jesus had his three. Peter, James, and John. He had his 12. He had the women he was with. He had the 72 that he sent out. 
So the invitation of the with God life is not for it's not just me and Jesus. It's to be done in the company of others. We live with others for others. And again, I'll just underscore that doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. But we we take intentional aim at the me and Jesus alone mentality. And that change in our life, if we desire to change and grow into the image of Christ, change doesn't happen by ourselves thinking about things. Change happens as we externalize with others and practice with others. And you are made to have some companions along the way. And hopefully those in this room become companions. That's why we talk about there's more to church on Sundays than just this time around a stage, but the value of being around a table, the value of having table groups, community groups, leadership teams, group experiences. I hope that you would find some people that you could belong with, belong to, and they'd cheer you on to discover more and more of God in your soul. And then one last one is kingdom imagination. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. When he teaches, he taught about the kingdom. As he Lived life, he modeled the kingdom. He was constantly talking about the kingdom, the, the, the inbreaking rule and reign of God, the king's domain. And the part of life and health and flourishing for us is not just a scope that thinks about me. We're just obsessed with ourselves. Or even, we don't want a church that's just obsessed with our own church. Jesus' invitation is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if we're going to wave the flag, we're not just going to wave the flag of self. And as we wave the flag, we're not just going to wave the flag of reality church. As we wave the flag, we're not going to wave the flag of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. As we wave the flag, we're not even going to wave the flag of the United States of America. Though I'm proud to be an American. The flag we wave is the kingdom of God. Our Savior, who rules and reigns over all things. It's one of the things I love about what David has begun to lead us in our prayer each week. Because we are a part of the body with Brazil, Ukraine, Jesus is redeeming for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so our imagination is to be cultivated about what does it mean for us to belong to this global body that cuts across denominational lines, political lines, national lines, our tribes. We celebrate our king. And we begin to dream, what does he want to do? How do we participate with him?
So as we continue to talk, like, what are we going to be doing and where are we going and what does it mean for us? Like, these are the things we want to show up more and more in our church. We want you to know that you are meant for intimacy with God. And if you don't know what that means, we want to help explain what that means. We want to help show you how you can play a part in discovering that. Life with others, life for others. We want to talk about how are we doing church in a way that is for health and flourishing? How do we seek to, to have an understanding about the quartet of the vulnerable and seek justice and righteousness? How do we demonstrate lavish hospitality? How do we call one another to live in committed community? How do we cultivate a kingdom imagination? And I'm curious, even as we end this tonight, what would be the implications of this kind of community together? What would that mean? What might have to change? Where can we continue to grow? That's a real question. You can maybe throw some ideas out. What would be the implications of this? Yeah, maybe change our hearts. What else? People in the world feeling more comfortable around the body of Christ. Being willing to listen. Yeah, so some things that we want to have happen may not happen because, yeah, it may push us over the edge to try and do that. In a healthy, sustainable way? Yeah. That may, it may mean saying no to some things so we can say yes to others. Yeah. Being willing to engage the awkwardness and mundane details of others' lives. It might get messy. Maybe we'll get messy. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, being able to see and welcome new people. Is that what you said? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Hearts transformed, mind touched, hearts renewed. I'm excited about what God's doing. I think it's important, even like it was last week, if that feels like a long time ago, but last week, even as we talked about the rebuilding of the temple, and there was celebration and shouts of joy and trumpets and priests in their garments and responsive shouting about the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, and then the older people of the church were weeping because it wasn't like it was before. It's important for us to continue to hold the tension of those things. And yet, as we continue to have an eye toward what lies ahead, we continue to press in and pray, Holy Spirit, would you, would you allow this stuff to grow? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you have in our community right now. 
for the opportunities right now of what you're doing, how you're forming and shaping us, how you're calling us to stay in step with you. And Jesus, we desire to experience the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom made possible through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That we get to be your temple, we get to be your body, we get to be your bride, we get to be your companions and partners in ministry to the nations. May we receive your warm welcome to us and may we extend that to others. Would you breathe fresh life and ideas, kingdom imagination about what part we could play, what you want to do. May you stoke our souls, our hearts, breathing fresh wind and fresh fire in us and over us. Holy Spirit. We want to be all that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.